Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club podcast. And if you're listening to this on our regular For the Love podcast feed, welcome. This is a sneak peek into all the incredible fun that we have behind the scenes at the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, which we would love to have you join. You can find out more and get a hold of this community over at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. So golly, we wanted to start off 2020 with a bang with a book that was going to be a guaranteed home run. And we did it. You guys, we absolutely did it. We read in January of 2021, this tender land by William Kent Kruger, who goes by Kent. Uh, It was so good. This is the kind of book that you read in two days. You start it and you can't, you get to the end of the chapter and you think, well, you know what? I know it's 1.30 in the morning, but I can't stop. So Kent has had a wildly interesting life. He was, according to him, born to a family full of wanderlust. He has been everywhere. He has lived everywhere. Fun fact, he got kicked out of Stanford for taking part in a Vietnam era protest at the school. And then he married his marvelous wife, who's now a retired attorney. And he's done everything. Like he's done everything from logging to construction, to freelance journalism, to child development research, which we're going to talk about a little bit in a second here. So in his words, the only constant in his life ever was his dream of being a writer. So he began this lovely little routine of rising at 5.30 in the morning to head over to a little cafe to write for a couple of hours before heading to his real job. And in that time, he just fell in love like with the creative process and his writer dreams didn't just take root, they flourished. So now he is known for, he's most well-known for his mystery series and he has won every award you can ever think of. Um, So for example, nine of his last novels were New York Times bestsellers. Nine, nine. He's got receipts, you guys. He published a standalone novel called Ordinary Grace in 2013, which received the Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers of America for best novel published that year. That's not bad. Best novel of the year. And the book we're discussing today, This Tender Land, is the companion novel to that one. So all these years later, this guy still rises at the crack of dawn to hunch over spiral notebooks at the same coffee shop. Isn't that fantastic? You're going to love him. If you haven't read this Tenderland, listen to this conversation. And I just know by the end of it, you will already have it in your cart. It is a absolute slam dunk book. You will love it. I'm so pleased to share this conversation with just such a delightful person. So delightful. Author extraordinaire, William Kent Kruger. Hi, Kent. How are you? I came across your book last year, and it was one of those kind of immediate, like, if this isn't a book club book, there is no such thing as a book club book. This is, it had it all. Intrigue and adventure and love and drama. And it's just absolutely fantastic. I can't wait to talk to you about it. My book club has loved it. Well, let's just get into it. I want to talk about this tender. Let's begin at the beginning. I have a bunch of questions. A lot of our members have a lot of questions. And so we'll get to as many of them as we can. But I wanted to start with you in terms of the whole concept of the Lincoln Indian Training School itself. Whoa. 
how did you develop this incredibly bleak place? Where was the inspiration for this coming from? Sure. Well, I write a long-running mystery series, the Coco Connor yeah. Mystery Series, which yeah. is set up in the great north woods of Minnesota. Yeah. And my protagonist in that series is a man of mixed heritage. He's part Irish-American, and he's part Ojibwe, yeah. Anishinaabe, which is the largest tribal affiliation in northern Minnesota. So I've been uh, working with the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabe community, for a couple of decades now. So I've been aware of that really tragic period of our history that involved the Native American boarding school system. When I was thinking about this tender land, I don't know if readers ever, I think only English majors probably caught this, but I structured this tender land in the same way that Homer structured the Odyssey. So everything that the, uh, everything that the, the vagabonds experienced on their journey in that summer of 1932, uh, mirrors an, an adventure that Odysseus had in his long journey from Troy back to Ithaca. What do you know? Yeah, and if you remember your Odyssey, where does Odysseus set out from? He sets out from Troy, a war zone. Mm -hmm. So I knew I wanted my vagabonds to be leaving a war zone, and I couldn't think of a more horrific environment to be running from than the Native American boarding schools. So I did. I had to do due diligence in researching yeah. it uh, to make sure that I got it correct, that all of the factual underpinnings were there. Here was another thing that I was super intrigued by, basically the role that silence played at the school. Because obviously, while it was predominantly filled with Native American kids, most of them don't actually Speak. We don't see a lot of their words in this Tinderland. And then obviously Moe's, as we know, is mute. That feels super intentional. It feels like you chose that on purpose. Can you talk about your choice to use silence to depict these kids? The Native American boarding school experience was terrible in so many ways, not the least of which is that the people who oversaw those children did their best to strip away every vestige of their native mm -hmm. culture. So these children were not allowed to speak their native tongue. And if they did, they risked really severe punishment for it. Mm -hmm. I chose to make Mose mute because he stands for an entire culture mm -hmm. that had no voice. Yeah. From the late 1880s, when the Native American boarding school experience began, when that system was instituted by Colonel Richard Henry Pratt yeah. at Carlisle until 1978 when the National Indian Child Welfare Act was passed. Mm -hmm. If you were a Native American parent and the government came to you and said, we are going to take your children away and we are going to cart them off to a boarding school hundreds of miles away and you will see them very seldom or maybe never. Yeah. There was absolutely nothing you could do. You had no mm -hmm. recourse. It was, it was the law that you had to give over your children. You had no voice. Mm. And so MOSE stands for a culture that had no voice then and we still don't really listen to, in my own opinion. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty profound symbolism and really well-written. I'm so curious how you developed, you know, the four main characters, your vagabonds. Like, did you have these kids in mind? Do they come to you one at a time? Did you have an end game and you wrote your way toward them? Or did they present themselves to you and your subconscious? I'm always so fascinated how fiction writers find their main folks. Yeah, you know, there are actually a lot of questions couched in that one question. Yeah, yeah you're right. I do that. It's terrible interview practice. That's all right. Let's let's parse it out a little bit. Okay. Let's talk about process. Did yeah. I know where these kids were going and what the end would be when I began writing the novel? Not at all. Yeah. 
Mm, um, wow. Which the process I followed in the construction, the composition of this Tenderland was so different than the process I follow when I write a mystery for my Corco Connor series. Mysteries are just in, they may be the most tightly woven fabric of storytelling that there is. Everything depends so significantly mm. on everything else. And so I think my mysteries through from start to finish before I ever put my fingers to the keyboard. Sure. By the end of that thinking process, I know how the story begins. I know. I know who did what to whom and why, but I approached this Tenderland in a more organic way. Mm -hmm. I knew only a few salient details yeah. about it going into the writing, so I really didn't know my four vagabonds very well okay. uh, when I began writing the story. The genesis for this Tenderland, you know, Jen, this is a story that I've wanted to write since I was 11 years old. Is it? Absolutely. When I was 11, that would have been in the, the fifth grade, toward the end of that yeah. year, our teacher read to the class The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. She did sure. it by reading half an hour after lunch every day. I love that book. Same. There was this kid, and he was just like me, and he was out there on the Mississippi River having these really great adventures. And of yeah. course, after that, I had to read Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which I loved even more. And across my entire career as a writer, I have wanted someday to write a book that would pay homage to Mark Twain that might be in its way an updated mm -hmm. version of Huckleberry Finn. So I always had Odio Banyan in mind as my Huck character. Yeah. And if you remember your Huckleberry Finn, Huck in his journey down the Mississippi is accompanied by a runaway slave named Jim. Sure. For whatever reason, in my own thinking, I always saw that character being a Native American kid, a little bit mm. older than Odie. So Mose was already yeah. there, at least an idea of Mose. Then when I realized among the many things I wanted to talk about in the novel was family. Yeah. What is family? How is family created? Is it mm -hmm. all about bloodlines or is it about something more significant? Yeah. But I wanted to give uh, Odie a little bit of a family, so I created an older brother yeah. for Odie, Albert. He's actually patterned after my oldest brother. Is who, that right? Yeah, who, like Albert, was always the smartest kid in the class, and he yeah. let you know it. So I had those three characters, and then Emmy came into my thinking. I mm. originally created Emmy simply to be a daughter for Cora Frost yeah. because I imagined Cora Frost as a woman who would have a daughter like Emmy. Mm. But when I was yeah. writing all of those scene, or scenes early on with Emmy in them, I just fell so in love with her. Same. And when it came time for the boys to leave the run away from the boarding school, I thought, oh, my God, they're leaving Emmy in a horrible situation. They can't do that. Yeah. So I knew she was going to have to be one of the vagabonds. And so I began thinking about, you know, what's the part Emmy can play in this epic journey? I'm so happy that you went with your gut on that because when I first read that, when the boys went and got her from the house, I thought, no, no, you can't take a six-year-old girl. It's not going to work. She's yeah. going to drag you down. This is going to be a lot of drama, but I honestly cannot even fathom the rest of the book without her without yes. her charm and her innocence and her precociousness. And then the sort of nurture she brought out in the boys, it wouldn't have been the same had yes. she not been on the, on the journey. She certainly brings out the protective element yeah. in, in the older boys and is in a major way responsible for the family coming together to, yeah. to protect her, essentially. But she also offers a good deal in terms of the rare gifts that she possesses. Oh, yeah. We're going to get to that. <laughs> um, and, and let me also just say I was delighted at the ending. Oh, good. Delighted. Oh, good. I mean, I wasn't sure what we were going to discover when we got that far down the road. If Odie was no. going to be the only one left, I didn't know. 
I didn't know either, Jen, really, yeah. until until very near the end of the, of the manuscript. Is when, that right? going to play out. Yeah, you know, I knew these kids were going to be on a journey in that second part. I had them discover the letters that set them yeah. on a course towards St. Louis. And Aunt Julia, I really didn't know what was waiting for them there, who really was Aunt mm. Julia. Um, and I really didn't know until I hit the very last section of the book, when uh, second to the last section, when the kids land at the, uh, the West Side Flats and spend yeah. some time there in St. Paul. When the kids got there, I realized pretty much everybody had found what they were looking for except Odie. Yeah. Albert had found Truman Waters and the towboat and that engine sure. he loved working on. And Mose had found Forrest and Calvin, two people of his own culture to help guide him. Yeah. And he had found Flo and Gertie, mother figures, if that's what she was looking for. But Odie still hadn't found home. Yeah. And so I knew the last leg of the journey was going to be Odie's alone. Whatever mm. was awaiting him in St. Louis was for him specifically. And then mm. I had to enlarge my thinking about, okay, who is Aunt Julia and oh, what yeah. is what is the secret that's waiting for Odie there? Yeah, I didn't see that coming with Aunt Julia at all. I don't know what I, story I was writing in my head that he was going to find in St. Louis, but that was a really interesting twist. The whole, all of it, both sort of the the brothel and who she sincerely was. When did you know that she was his mother? In that second to the last section, when I realized this is Odie's journey, this part of it is Odie's journey okay. alone. And then I had to think, okay, who is Aunt Julia? Why is it important for him? And then my storyteller's imagination kicked yeah. in. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. And I began to see, and things began to fall into place for me. And I began to see how really coming to St. Louis will bring the story full circle because we'll yeah. bring back in the witch, the black witch. We'll yeah. get the connections there. And I had to rewrite that last section probably more than any other in the book. Mm. Those revelations at the end come rather swiftly. Yeah. And so I didn't want it to be done in such a way that a reader would roll his or her eyes and go, oh, give me a break. Mm. I wanted it to feel natural then. So then, of course, I had to go back and plant all of the clues across the course ah. of the story so that the reader would go, oh, yeah, I get oh. it. What clues did I miss? What's a clue that you planted? Several times I pointed out that Odie and Albert simply do not didn't resemble look one another. Yeah, you not did. the way brothers would have. Yeah, you did. That's true. That's true. I have long said as a reader, I love to be surprised. I mentally stop myself from making guesses and trying to suss out what I think is happening and what the plot twists are, if there are any. And so I did pick up on how many times you let us know they didn't look alike, but I just, I blanked out on it. No, wait and see what happens. Yeah. Um, and it was such a satisfying twist. Also satisfying was the big fall out of the window. You know, you had to have something go down in a blaze of glory like that. That was... The Black Witch certainly needed her comeuppance. She sure did. And can, I say, can I say something about the Black Witch? Yes, please. She, she is almost evil personified. Yeah. You know, I don't believe anybody is born bad. Yeah. They're not born evil. Yeah. Things happen to us that shape us one way or another. And so when I create an antagonist who wreaks nothing but destruction in the story, at some point I try to give the reader an idea of why that person yeah. behaves the way he or she does. What shaped that person? And so in that exchange between Aunt Julia and the Black Witch at the end of the story, I offer the reader an idea of why she behaved so badly. I mean, having been essentially sold into sex slavery when she was very, very young, it doesn't mean you have to like her, mm -hmm. but I hope it gives the reader 
foundation for, for understanding. As the reading community, we really appreciated that inclusion. That was a point of conversation in our community because, as I'm sure you've probably heard from a lot of your readers, in some ways, reading about such a traumatic childhood, reading about abandonment, reading about like physical and psychological abuse is very triggering you know, for a lot of readers who had some sort of similar childhood experience and and our community was no different. And so a lot of our members, you know, who were like, whoa, this really hit a bruise for me in several ways. We also discussed our appreciation for your inclusion of her backstory, because that's real life. Even the people, the real humans in our world who have been our abusers the ones who left us or harmed us or failed to care for us. That's generally always their story as well. Something like it, something like it. And so I appreciated that you made her human and not just an evil prototype without a lot of dimension to her. So that was actually something of a relief to read in her story. We didn't like her. We were still glad she died, (laughs) but I appreciated that. If you love this podcast, then I bet you also love listening to audiobooks. And I'll tell you the very best place to get them. It's audiobooks.com. So audiobooks.com offers a catalog of over 200,000 books, including my own. Um, They've got For the Love. They've got Of Mess and Moxie. They've got Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire. Plus, they have most of the books that we read together in the book club. So if you're ever running short of time, hit up audiobooks.com and see if you can listen to your book while you're working out or driving or getting your chores checked off your to-do list. I love doing that. One cool thing about audiobooks.com is this feature where you can start a book on your smartphone and then pick up where you left off on your laptop or even fall asleep while listening on your tablet and you never lose your place. I love that. It's so convenient. Right now, you can sign up for a 30-day trial and get your first book free, plus two bonus books from their VIP selection. That is an incredible deal. So to sign up for your free 30-day trial, go to jenhatmaker.com slash podcast and find the show notes for this episode. And while you're there, click the link for audiobooks.com to sign up. Easy. So go to jenhatmaker.com slash podcast and then click the audiobooks.com link in today's show notes to sign up for your free 30-day trial. One of my favorite things in the whole world is supporting women, which I think you know. That's especially true when it comes to women-owned businesses that are doing good in the world. And it's especially true when those businesses are making me delicious coffee, like Wagon Coffee. So Wagon Coffee is a business that's women-owned, and it's focused on empowering and employing women in recovery. And here's how. Wagon Coffee's owner, Tammy Canaday, started a nonprofit with her husband, Ryan, called Free. It's a spiritual community for addicts and their loved ones, and also spiritual refugees. Tammy hires women from free to work at Wagon Coffee. Isn't that just incredible? And listen, these ladies can make some coffee. Uh, One of my absolute favorites is their 1210 white coffee. I literally had that this morning. It tastes like dessert in your mouth. It's nutty, but it's not acidy, and it's got... This is a real selling point. 
70% more caffeine than regular coffee, guys. <laughs> okay. You can make a tangible difference through a one-time purchase or make a lasting impact while saving some cash, of course, through their monthly coffee subscription service. So go to wagoncoffeeroasters.com and save 10% off all their coffee choices with the discount code for the love. Okay, so it's wagoncoffeeroasters.com and use code for the love for 10% off all your coffee today. All right, guys, back to our show. I was really excited to talk to you today because for me, one of the most interesting through lines that you really did a masterful job of writing and conceptualizing and including was the role that the nature of God played throughout the manuscript. Obviously, Odie deeply grappling with the nature of God. And, you know, I just thought about the tornado God for weeks, just weeks and weeks and weeks. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to include that layer and how that developed for you as the writer, as the creator of that, and specifically a little bit about Odie's relationship with God and how it changes? I just really wanted to hear from the author. I'd like to just hear you kind of talk about that inclusion because it was really fascinating. Sure. And I get asked this all the time. You do. Yeah, and and I'm happy that I get asked this all the time. If you were to read my the stories in my Cork O'Connor series, there are 17 of those. You would see that very often there is a an undercurrent in the story that deals with the spiritual journey. It's something that comes pretty naturally from my protagonist, Cork O'Connor, because he's a man with a foot in two different spiritual traditions. His white Catholicism, he's Irish Catholic, mm -hmm. and his Ojibwe spirituality. Mm -hmm. So very often in the stories, he's struggling with understanding where his unique spiritual path lies. And that's been an issue for me my whole life. There is a companion novel to This Tender Land. It's called Ordinary Grace. It came out in 2013. And that was really the first first opportunity I had to speak really more directly to the question of the importance of the spiritual journey in our lives, because I think we're all on a spiritual journey, whether we embrace that or not. Mm. I so appreciated the opportunity that story gave me to focus on the spiritual journey that it seemed fairly natural for me to weave it again into yeah. this tender land because it continues to be an important issue in my own life. Mm. And so when we meet Odie, his image of God is a very Old Testament image, a, a wrathful God, a smiting God, a, yeah. a shepherd that eats his flock one by one. And then in the course of that summer, he meets Sister Eve, who offers yeah. him a different image of God, a loving God, a compassionate God, a forgiving God. Yeah. And so across the, the course of his journey, Odie is trying to put those very divergent images of the divine mm -hmm. together in a way that he can understand. He tries like I guess we all continue to try to unravel the great unravelable mystery that is the divine. Mm. And so I really enjoyed opening the epilogue with the section where Odie essentially talks about where he has come in his spiritual journey, yeah. his understanding that there is a great spirit that runs through time in the universe and every particle of our being is a part of that great spirit. And, mm. and what is that river that flows through it all but God? Hmm. which is where basically I've come in my own spiritual journey. Yeah. 
us as well. As a reading community, a lot of us have a sort of a convoluted, twisty, turny relationship with faith and God and spirit and divine. And so I, we saw ourselves in him all at different plot points and appreciated that you gave him the chance to shift and reimagine and reconsider and change anyway. But I also appreciated that you gave him a good chunk of the time just to say, nope, this is the tornado God. And just to be in it without having to clean it up or prop it up in any way, because that's where a lot of people are for at least a season of their lives. That was very relatable. It kind of ancillary to that. I'd like to talk about the function of miracles and sort of the supernatural that you included in this story, like, you know, like Albert's healed snake bite and the near death escapes and Odie's storytelling and even Emmy's kind of special gift that you kind of allude, you, you don't really go on the nose on it, but you kind of let us imagine what that is looking like for her and what it might develop as a grown up. So, how did you decide to weave in this sort of supernatural miracle thing in addition to just conception of God and faith? Sure. When I knew that Emmy was going to be one of the vagabonds, I had to come up with a part for her to play in this story. My father was a high school English teacher, and he had me reading all of the classic mythic heroic journeys from, from quite an early age. And one of the things that I remembered from all of those mythic journeys is, is that very often a hero or a heroine on their journey are accompanied by a seer. Somebody who can actually look into the future and offer advice, whether it's taken or not. And so I thought, I will make Emmy my seer, which mm. was not at all a leap for me because my mother was a seer. Oh. When I was a kid, it wasn't unusual at all for the telephone to ring and mom would go, there's something wrong with Aunt Joanne. And yeah, there was something wrong with Aunt Joanne. Or yeah. she would toss and turn in bed for, for nights and say, something terrible is going to happen. And sure enough, something terrible would happen. Mm. And I have had a number of people write to me after the book's publication and say, yeah, I get this. I'm a seer. I have seen things all my life. Mm. And then it was a little bit of a, I took poetic license. Sure. To suggest that perhaps... Emmy's ability goes a bit beyond that, yes. which allowed me to make sense of some of the things that otherwise would have been completely enigmatic to mm -hmm. the reader if I didn't have Amy play a part in how they occurred. Mm. Yeah, I loved that part. I, I liked that element. That was a surprising element that I enjoyed so much. As you are writing, especially since you said this particular book followed a little bit more of an organic path, less scripted and structured and more like, let's see what they do. Was there any one section of the book that even kind of took you by surprise that you thought, I didn't know they were going to go here, or I didn't know this was going to happen, or I didn't realize this was going to be a departure? I'm not sure. Is there just anything that you realized, oh, I've got to write this and I didn't expect this? Yeah. Particularly that section that took place in Mankato in the Hooverville, what mm. we call Hopersville there. Yeah. You know, when I had done all of my research for the story, I knew about the Hoovervilles. Mm -hmm. And so it was such a an element of the Great Depression that I knew I had to create a Hooverville at some point mm -hmm. and have the kids experience that. I thought that was going to be in St. Paul. But when mm -hmm. I did my research for the Twin Cities, there was no Hooverville here. Okay. So I created it in Mankato, a city to the south of us. So I knew Odie was going to be experiencing the Hooverville thing there. And I thought that's all that that part of the story might be about. Okay. 
And then I had the kids after they leave the sort of Gideon healing crusade, Sister Mm -hmm. Eve sends them off and they land on the island where Albert is going to recover from his snake bite Mm -hmm. and they're going to kind of rest and pull themselves together. Well, it sounded like this is going to be too dull a a section. Mm -hmm. I need something to happen on this island. And so Mm -hmm. I thought, well, they'll discover a body. (laughs) And Uh so they did. Yeah. And then I thought, well, let's make it even more meaningful. It's going to be a Native American kid. And that's when I began to make the connections with Moe's coming to realize who he is Mm. and what Mankato, their their experience there was really going to mean for for Mose. I knew Odie was going to be involved, would fall in love. I I kind of thought that, mm. but I really wasn't sure what was going to happen with Mose. And there it was for me. So it took me by surprise, just discovering that the mm. bones, yeah, and realizing they're they're a native kid's bones. And my storyteller's imagination took it from there. And that was hard to read. It was hard to, I think, for me it was hard to sort of lose Moe's there for a while yeah. to just despair and grief and trauma, which I, I appreciate that you wrote it like that. Cause that's true. You wrote it in an honest and a genuine way, but I wondered for a while, are we going to get him back? Is he going to go through this process of grieving and are we going to get sort of his spirit back? But I, you did a lovely job of honoring history and loss and, and just the native community. I do you have a lot of native readers? Are the, do you get a lot of feedback from them? Are they are they happy with what you've done? You know, I haven't had any feedback on this tender land from the native community. Mm. I've ha- I've had that from native readers for my Corker Connor series, sure. and their feedback has always, thank goodness, been quite positive. But nothing yet from the native community. But you know, I didn't have an agenda in mind when I was writing the the Dakota. A history mm-hmm. there. But I knew that there were going to be so many people who had no idea, white readers, who had no idea about the Native American, that horrific period yeah. of the Native American boarding schools, or about the mass execution, the largest mass right. execution in America there in Mankato. 38 Native warriors were hung. And when I was thinking about Moe's going in and beginning to understand who he is and the, the importance of the culture from which he comes, I realized he was going to go into a dark period you know, there are manipulations you do as a storyteller all of the time. And so I wanted readers to be really afraid that Mose was going to step away from mm-hmm. the journey now and leave yeah. the vagabonds. Yeah. I wanted that to be a profound fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, or that w- if he stayed with them, he was going to be very different and very dark and not the, yeah. there would be no Mosness yeah. left to him. I had fun leading the reader on a bit. Yeah, well, mission accomplished on that. Um, I was not sure where that was going to go at the end. I'm like, bring them back to us. We really did grow to love those four kids for different reasons and in different ways. But their individualism was so special, but as was their chemistry, the way they related to each other in unique ways was just really, really well done. I know that your books are not all the same, but in this particular, in this tender land, what did your research process look like? How long did you spend reading and wool gathering and researching until you were ready to write? Well, I did a good deal of research up front, particularly for the Native American boarding school to make sure that I had factually what I needed to create that environment. 
and the Great Depression. I did a good deal of reading on mm-hmm. the Great Depression going into it. So I knew about the Hoovervilles. I knew about the tent revival movements. Oh, yes. Yeah. I want to talk about that. You know, this is being called an historical novel, which tickles me a little bit because I was born not long after the Depression ended. <laughs> and so yeah. I grew up on stories my folks told about surviving the Depression. My father was from Oklahoma. And he was there during the Dust Bowl time, growing up during oh, the yeah. Dust Bowl. So hey, he told stories about it raining mud from the sky and, and going out to uh, scrounge greens, wild mm. greens to supplement their meals, that kind yeah. of thing. I didn't live through the Depression myself, so mm. I needed to make sure that I had the facts right. We are really fortunate here in St. Paul. We have this great history resource called the Minnesota History Center. In the History Center, there is a section called the Gale Family Library, which is essentially an archive of all the newspapers ever published in Minnesota, as well as uh, memoirs and first-person accounts by the people who lived through those periods. So mm-hmm. I spent hours and hours in the library going over microfilm newspapers from the day. So I knew what things cost and what people wore and sure. what were the important events of the day locally and nationally that the kids would, would need to know about. And then uh, I began the writing. And even during the writing, I was continuing my research whenever yeah. I come up came up uh, across something that I hadn't done the research for. And even after the book was finished, I was still doing research and mm. popping in elements that yeah. I had just jumped over. How long did it, once you started writing, once you put your fingers on the keyboard and typed the first word or two, how long did this one take you to, to write? Three years, but I oh, wasn't wow. working. I wasn't working on it in a consistent way. I wrote mm. it between contractual obligations in my yeah. Mark O'Connor series. Yes, this was your little side hustle. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I'm so very happy you stuck with it and that you have some sort of insane compartment to open your brain into two halves and manage two fiction projects at once. That feels impossible as much as you have to be immersed in a storyline and living the lives of your characters. And that's commendable to say the least that you were able to do two things at once with such heavy lifting. I've got some questions for you, if you don't mind. My Book club had a ton of questions, so we waited them out. We're not, we can't sit here until next week. That we, I had some that I would love to hear your answer on. So here's a question from Anna Brown. I don't know if you've ever heard this. You've obviously already told told us that you you know you mirrored Odyssey here, but she said, "I felt like there were so many similarities to The Wizard of Oz. Like Oz, <laughs> each character seemed to be looking for something specific in their own lives." They also meet a cast of characters and they're being chased by a witch. Were these similarities intentional? Uh, Have you ever heard that? I have. And it's so interesting. So there are some literary illusions I was absolutely aware of, literary influences. So Mark Twain, Homer, Charles Dickens. But after the book was published and readers began to point out the similarities to The Wizard of Oz, I I was gobsmacked. Uh, I'm going... Well, of course, but I never saw that. Oh, that's crazy. I know, I know. It's all there. The the Black Witch, the tornado, the characters in search of things they don't have. That's right. Odie's search for home. Oh Um, my gosh, that's so true. Yeah, yeah. But what that says to me is this, is that there is a lot of storytelling that goes on beneath the conscious level. And so we're influenced by all kinds of things that we're not necessarily consciously aware of as we're creating our stories. And The Wizards of Oz was was certainly one of those for me. That's fantastic. Here's something that we were also interested in. This is a question from Barbara Jean Weiss-Tester. She said, what research specifically on children did you do? Because you handled such a such fragile topics of abuses and trauma, and how did you approach that? 
Yeah, I ended my workaday world career researching child development at the University of Minnesota for an organization called the Institute of Child Development. Mm. And the area that I, I ran a research laboratory there for one of the professors whose area of research was stress. How as human beings do we develop the mechanisms that help us deal with stress? And among the many studies she did, she went over to Romania. I don't know if you remember many years ago, there was a huge hue and cry over the the orphanages in yeah. Romania where yeah. the children were essentially... Never held. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And in all, across the, the, the whole scope of her research, the theme that kept recurring was the resilience of children. Hmm. Children can experience enormous trauma and rebound from that so long as they have the proper support. And so these children in this tender land have all suffered greatly, but they are supported as well. So there is Cora Frost early on Hmm. and Herman Volz early on. And then we get Sister Eve and Hmm. we get the Schofields and Gertie and Flo. So these kids have, Hmm. and they have one another. They form a family and they have one another to fall back on. So they have the mechanisms to deal with the traumas they experience. Hmm. So this is another question, and I, I'm glad that we're raising this one because I wanted to talk about this character. This is from Dana Braun, and she said, can you tell us more about the character of Sister Eve? Did you think of her as a psychic, an intuitive, or just a sensitive, God-fearing believer? And was she inspired by a real person? Yeah, I told you my father grew up in Oklahoma in the uh-huh. Deep South, and the family he came out of was very fundamentalist in their religion. And so my mm-hmm. father, as a child, was saved many times. I always loved his stories of the tent revivalists who sure. came through. I never experienced a tent revival myself, but I've always wanted to write about them. So I knew yeah. that was, I don't know if you or your readers know this, but in the early part of the 20th century, a huge evangelical movement swept mm-hmm. the nation. By the time the vagabonds were on their epic journey in the summer of 1932, it had pretty much died out in the rest of the country, but it was still very powerful in the South and in the Midwest. And names that came out of that, some of your readers may be aware of, Amy Semple McPherson, Billy Sunday. I needed to do a good deal of research in order to to create that tent revival experience. But I have to be quite honest, a good deal of my research came from Elmer Gantry, Sinclair Lewis. Mm -hmm. Elmer Gantry uses religion for his own selfish purposes. He's a con man from the get-go. And at one point in the novel, he spent some time with a tent revivalist evangelist mm. named Sharon Falconer, who is a woman of the world. I mean, she smokes and drinks and carouses sure. with Elmer. But she is also a woman who believes profoundly that God has tapped her to deliver a loving message to the world. And I thought, what an interesting, complex character. Yeah. So that's where my thinking about Sister Eve began. And in terms of her abilities, do you know I'm just the storyteller? <laughs> yeah. The characters. We'll draw our own and conclusions. I, and I I love uh, leaving the reader to draw his or her own con- yeah. uh, conclusions, but I also enjoy introducing readers to a character in a way that won't allow them to read that character in the beginning. And so I, when readers meet Sister Eve, I didn't want them to know exactly who she is. Is she a con? Is yeah. it all a game for her? Yeah. Or is there something real going on with Sister Eve? Yeah, and it's still not super clear. So I like that you left a little bit of mystery around her while giving us a character that I actually really loved. I loved her and I loved her spirit and I loved her nature. And even if there wasn't, was an element of grift 
to her character, I think I'm willing to overlook it or justify it. You wrote in her like a really interesting personality. Really, really I liked I, that addition was wonderful. Yeah, I have two favorite characters in the hmm. story, and she's one of them. Who's the other? Odie. Oh, Odie sure. O'Banion. Sure. Gosh, we cheered for that kid. Yeah. All the way to the end. One of my favorite elements was the way in which Odie kept jumping ahead and speaking to us from ahead. I think for me a little bit, it was also a relief to know that he lived and I didn't have to worry the whole time that he was going to die. So thank you so much for eliminating that fear for me. But that was special to hear from old Odie. And then, of course, obviously, when Emmy was his companion in the end, that you couldn't have ended that better. One more <laughs> member question, and then we'll kind of start wrapping it up here. This is from Carrie Ann Short. And I'll be interested to hear what you say about this. She says, was the traveling on the river meaningful or symbolic for you as a writer? The twists and turns and stories around the bend. I can kind of see some parallelism to being a storyteller, but obviously it's where you're from as well. Just how did the river factor in? Well, as a storyteller, I love rivers because they can be metaphors for so many things. And they are certainly metaphors for the spiritual journey, for the journey in creating family, for the journey toward forgiveness and compassion, all of those. The journey from childhood into a broader understanding of the world when we think of arriving at our adulthood. But for me, every story ought to be like a journey on a river. And at the end of that journey, every character ought to be in a different place in his or her understanding of the world than they were at the beginning. Mm. And that's certainly true for readers of these kinds of stories. They ought to be in a different place as well. And that's certainly true for those of us who write the stories. Mm. By the time I hit the end of this tenderland, in so many ways, I was in a different place than I was at the beginning. Did you have to go back in editing and majorly change anything? There were a couple of major changes. Tweaking Emmy's abilities took a Mm. bit. Oh, gosh, there must have been a lot. There must have been more. I I had such wonderful help with my editors on this novel. I don't care how huge a writer you are. Yes. Every writer needs a good editorial eye. And, And I had the best editorial eye at work here. I'm a writer, too, but I write nonfiction. But I have always said that... I need a minimum of three editors between me and the general public. That's the only way (laughs) any of us will be safe and get out of here alive. (laughs) I get that. Oh, thank goodness for the editors. They save us so many, many problems later. Great stories are powerful, right? That's why I love this podcast. We get to hear people from all walks of life, talking about their obstacles and their wins. And you know another place we get to do that? The Gin Hatmaker Book Club. And I want you to join today because if you love this podcast, you're going to love the book club. Here's the deal. Each month, we'll dive into a fantastic book and we read all kinds of stuff, fiction, memoirs, self-help, all of it. Every single book is something I have read and loved. And I just know you will too. After you sign up every month, I'll send you a box with the book and other fun treats. Plus, your membership comes with a whole slew of perks. You get resources like reading plans, weekly summaries, discussion questions. Plus, you get tons of exclusive community stuff. 
You get access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with me and all your fellow members. And there's a monthly Facebook live chat session with me and sometimes some surprise guests. Sometimes I pop into the Zoom meetings of our local chapters, which is always delightful. Plus, we do some cool stuff with the book's author. They curate these awesome Spotify playlists just for us. Plus, I record a podcast with the author or another special guest, and we talk about the book. It is an incredible way to cap it all off. And you know what makes a book club great? The people. This community is the kindest, most supportive group you can possibly imagine. So sign up today at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We are here waiting to welcome you into the sisterhood with open arms. So join us at jenhatmakerbookclub.com today. Okay, back to our show. Well, I have one more question and then we'll just wrap it up. And this is just one we always want to know from our authors because good writers are also always readers and sometimes our very best sources of great recommendations. So we're curious to know, what are you reading right now? Or what have you read recently even that you say, this is a home run. This is worth putting on your short list, no matter who you are. Yeah, I'm going to give two recommendations, and both of them have significant relationships to this tenderland. The first I read a few weeks ago and then was in conversation with the author, Lisa Wingate, and the book is Before We Were Yours. Just a Oh, I read it. A dynamic story, a true story, essentially, a story about a true situation, uh, children being stolen from their families and essentially sold to others. So that was it. I just oh. thought it was a terrific, terrific. Terrific. Book. I read it in one sitting. Yeah. yeah. And I just started today a book. I'll, I'll be in conversation with the author of this book in a couple of weeks, Kristen Hanna's newest novel, The Four Winds. And mm. I am so, I love her work and I'm so looking forward to reading this novel. What's the premise? Again, it's struggling through the Great Depression and the strains and stresses. It puts on families, relationships. Oh, it's going to be fun. (laughs) Well, yes, I love to always get a book out of the hands of a master who knows how to weave a story. Well, I want to tell you, Kent, that we are... This has just been the most wonderful way to start out 2021 in our book club. We wanted to start the new year with one that just was incorruptible. That we knew no matter what your sort of reader preference is, whether you're the memoir person or the fiction, or you like the science fiction, we're going to give you a story. Everybody's going to be happy. And we did. And it's this tender land. And it was just a home run in our community. And so bravo to you. Thank you for writing such an exciting, poignant, tender, wonderful story. Are we going to see any more from these guys? I have no, yeah, I have no plans for a sequel to uh, this Tenderland. I wrote their stories and and I'm, I'm ready to move on. Okay. That's fine. But the whole time I was reading it, I thought this absolutely has to be a movie. So what about that? Well, we've been in negotiations with three different uh, production companies so far. We haven't, uh, we haven't reached any agreement yet. I've been dealing with Hollywood for 20 years. And the one thing I know about Hollywood is everything moves. It moves at two speeds, Jen, Uh, mm -hmm. slow 
and glacial. So <laughs> don't hold your breath. Well, look, if somebody passes on this tender land as a screenplay, well, they're an idiot. Um, <laughs> you've just, you have given it to them on a silver platter and all they do need to do is turn the cameras on. And so I sincerely hope that one moves over the finish line because what an epic movie this would make. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being a part of our little book club community this month. We're just delighted. We are all huge fans. We will read everything you give us, gobble it all up. And so we look forward to everything that comes next. Well, thank you so much for having chosen this Genderland for your inaugural book in 2021. And I just got to tell you, you are delightful. I've had just a lovely time. That's so nice. I will take delightful. Thank you. Okay. So we're sending all of our love up to you up there in the North. Your spring will come. It'll probably be in June. (laughs) (laughs) We we have one day of spring and then it's summer. That's exactly right. That's right. Thank you, Kent. You're welcome.